If you have your Bibles with you there in your home this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Genesis chapters 10 through chapter 11. We're going to look briefly, kind of an overview of chapter 10. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 and this uh, narrative that's probably pretty familiar with you, uh, the Tower of Babel incident. Really, that's the central text in these two chapters. So that text is surrounded by these two uh, genealogies. And these chapters are incredibly significant because they answer two very important questions. Number one, they answer the question, uh, how did nations arise? How did nations and languages arise? And then the second question that necessarily comes out of, the, out of that question is, how will they be uh, reunited? And so uh, here we'll find two more answers to some of life's biggest questions. You know, so much of Genesis is God telling us about ourselves. It's God speaking to man about his own mind. And so I I want us to remember, even though this morning we're going to look at the nations, that God is speaking to each one of us individually. That this is not just some ancient text about a a primitive group of people uh, trying to build a a primitive skyscraper. No, this this is a relevant, important passage to our lives. And I think if we're careful here, we'll see a little bit of ourselves in this text. So before we move into the Word of God this morning, let's pray together. I'm going to take a knee uh, just because as we've gone through this, uh, I want to demonstrate my humility before the Lord as we study His Word. If you're able to join me, that's great. If not, that's okay too. But let's pray together before we study God's Word. Father, we thank you this morning as we come to your word. We humble ourselves before you, recognizing that you are sovereign, you are in control. We're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word so that when it comes to who you are and who we are and how we interact to you, we're not left to our own devices to figure it out on our own, but you've revealed yourself. God, I pray that in your inspired, holy, and errant word this morning that you would speak to us. God, help us to better understand who you are, who we are, and how we interact with you. I pray that we would give you permission today to to critique our lives. God, I pray that where we need correction, we would be corrected. Where we need encouragement, we would be encouraged. But Lord, I pray more importantly than anything else, all of us today, as means of, by means of studying your word today, that we'll draw closer to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look kind of at an overview of chapter 10, uh, chapter 10 gives us a picture uh, of how the nations begin to spread out all over the earth post the flood. And uh, if you've noticed, if you've read ahead, uh, chapter 10, chronologically speaking, should occur after uh, chapter 11. What God is doing here is he's just finished the Noah story. He's told us about his three sons, and then he's going to give us a detailed account of how these sons uh, spread out into nations amongst all the earth. And then chapter 11 is kind of a flashback. How did that dispersion occur? Remember, not all of this is chronological. All of it is thematic. And so uh, we're going to see chapter 10 chronologically should occur after chapter 11. 
But these, this chapter 10 is incredibly significant. I'm not going to read all of it this morning. I, I hope and pray that you'll read it all on your own. We're going to focus in on just a few of these verses. Um, but it is, it's placed here to show us the generations that came through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's a genealogy not just about na- uh, persons. It's, it's more uh, importantly about nations or clans and heads of clans and ethnicities. And uh, so as we look at this, uh, you'll find uh, a genealogy that's unique to the Bible. And it has uh, three important purposes. So again, I want to encourage you to read it all on your own. But let me give you three truths that you're going to find in these genealogies that deal with the nations. Number one, God made all the nations. All of us are descendants of Noah and his wife. All of us can trace our lineage back to one of these three boys, uh, one of these three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. So uh, what really that means for us, practically speaking, is what we call nations and what we often associate with biological differences, biblically speaking, has no real basis at all. There is one race, it's the race of Adam, and we are far more alike than we are different. That from one man, God made all the nations of the earth. In fact, if you look at the nations represented in Genesis chapter 10, you find 70 uh, nations. Not an exhaustive list, but what we have here is an account of the nations, how they spread out. So one man, God brings about all the nations. And for this reason and for many others, any form of, of racial prejudice or bigotry is foolishness. Not only is it foolishness, but it's a sign of ignorance. Because none of us prior to our existence did we know a moment where we stood before God before being born and said, God, uh, for me in my instance, God, give me Oklahoma and make me a white male. No, I just woke up screaming in a hospital. I didn't earn that. I didn't achieve that. That's simply something God did by his sovereign hand and by his grace. And so for any of us, no matter what our nationality or race, for any of us to elevate who we are racially or ethnically above any other race or nation is a sign of our own ignorance. And it's foolishness according to the word of God. God made all the nations and we are all of the same blood. So not only do we see here that God made all the nations, but God is sovereign over all the nations. That God causes nations to rise and God causes nations to fall. We see this throughout Scripture. You're going to see Babylon, this great uh, nation, is going to rise. And guess what? They're going to fall. Assyria, a great nation, is going to rise. And then what's happened is going to fall. Uh, Egypt, great nation, rises and then it falls. Rome rises and falls. So what we see uh, in this uh, genealogy of the nations and the spreading out, we see God sovereign over the nations, over their rise and over their fall. And there's only only one kingdom that is eternal, and it's the kingdom of God. So we see God made the nations, God sovereign over the nations, but we also see that God loves the nations. And this truth is unmistakable throughout Scripture. Even as God will call Abraham out from amongst the nations, and God will set apart a people or a nation unto himself, his desire is that all the nations would be blessed through that nation and through Abraham and his seed. And we will see that in the coming weeks. In fact, uh, even as you move into the New Testament, God commissions the disciples to go and make disciples of who? Of all the nations. And in Revelation, we'll see all the nations gathered around the throne of God. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see who God who, who made the nation and nations. He's sovereign over the nations and he loves the nations. 
But what we're going to see in chapter 11 is that the nations will naturally rebel against God. This is what we're going to see in chapter 11. Man rebels. So God made the nations. Uh, He's sovereign over the nations. He loves the nations, but then they rebel. Chapter 10, there is one individual that I want us to look at uh, very briefly before we jump into chapter 11. And uh, so these verses in chapter 10, verses 6 through 10, it highlights an individual who leads the rebellion of uh, the nations. Uh, So let's just look at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 10. It says there, The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So here we see an individual. He's a Hamite. He's the son of Cush. And his name is Nimrod. The name Nimrod means let us rebel. I've often wondered what kind of child must this boy have been to be able to be named a Nimrod or let us rebel. I've never dedicated a baby named Nimrod. My mom, I think, called me a Nimrod a couple of times, but that's a different sermon for a different day. But these verses give us some indicators as to who this man is. And it's important to know because he's going to lead the rebellion. What we see here primarily, he's mighty, he's powerful. That's stated at least twice in this text. But then it tells us he's a mighty hunter. Uh, Now, there are those that believe that this means that he hunted uh, men or that he was a murderer, much like Lamech in the line of Cain that we studied in Genesis chapter 4. But I think if that were the case, God would have made it a little more clear to us as it did in chapter 4. I think this simply means that he was a very skilled hunter. He enjoyed killing animals. And two, we find out that he was before the Lord. In other words, to some measure, this guy has caught the attention of God. And then we find out that he's a man of authority. He's seeking to build a kingdom. So it's not enough for him to have dominion over the animal realm. Now he wants to control men. He wants authority. He wants power over men. So he sets up his kingdom. And where does he set up his kingdom? He sets it up in the area of Shinar or Babel. And that will be the same area in which we'll find the events of chapter 11. So here we see... Uh, a very powerful individual who is, is hungry for authority and control. And if there's one thing you see in Scripture, it's to beware of the individual who desires and hungers control and authority. And he will lead the rebellion that we see in chapter 11. So let's read chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So read there with me, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they're one people, 
And they, they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so here we see the rebellion of man. If, if you remember after the flood, God gives one real command to Noah and his family. He says to them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the one command. Post-flood, he desires man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But what do we see man doing here? He's not filling the earth. He is staying. He is settling. So God says, fill the earth. Man says, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to fill the earth. I think I'd just rather stay right here and build a city. In fact, if you look at verse 4, it says, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In other words, they're saying, if we're not careful, we might have to obey God. Uh, It appears that in their mind, the worst possible scenario would be following God's commands. So they don't view God's words as a blessing to follow. They view the word of God as a curse to be rebelled against. That we know better than God what is good for our lives. And so these Babylonians led by Nimrod, they're going to seek to build a city and a culture that is absent of God. If you know your Bible, you know Babel or Babylon throughout Scripture is a picture of a godly, godless society that worships at the feet of human achievement. That is Babylon. From Genesis all the way, you'll see them again in Revelation, but Babylon is symbolic of a godless society that worships at the feet of human achievement. So here they are, this community of Babel led by Nimrod, and they're going to seek to meet the two most basic needs of their life apart from God. And what we need to understand is these needs that they're going to seek to meet are universal for all of us. In fact, they're the driver. These two needs are the drivers behind all their activities and all their efforts. And to a large extent, they're oftentimes the drivers behind all of our efforts and all of our work. And really, we all have these needs, and you're going to seek to fulfill these needs in one of two ways. You're either going to seek to fulfill it on your own, or you'll find fulfillment to these needs through a relationship with God by faith in his son, Jesus. So here they are. Let's look at these two needs. First of all is a need for significance. They're building a city and they're building a tower. But what lies behind their efforts? What's the motivation? Well, you see it in verse 4. It says, let us make a name for for ourselves. They're looking, in essence, they're looking for meaning. They're looking for significance. They desire that the world would come and see Babylon and see their tower, this tower. And they'd say, wow, look at these Babylonians. Look at how amazing these folks are. And so they're looking for meaning and significance. They're, they're afraid they're going to die and no one will remember who they were. Now, every individual on the face of the planet has hardwired into their soul a need for significance and meaning. We all have a need to know that our life matters. 
It's the reason we like plaques and we like statues and we like buildings to be named after us. We, we want to be immortalized in that kind of way. But here's the bottom line. Any level of meaning or significance other than the significance that can only be found in God and his son Jesus is fleeting and hollow. Listen to me this morning. God has created you and designed you in such a way that ultimate meaning and significance can only be found in a relationship with him. God made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're the crown of his creation. You're the apple of his eye. That you and I, we enjoy a value to the heart of God unlike any other part of creation because we alone have been made in the image of God. In Psalm 8, the psalmist, as he looks up into the heavens and he sees the moon and the stars, you remember what he says? He says, when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you should take thought of him? Or the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty and you make him to rule over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. The psalmist says, when I look at the heavens, I feel very insignificant. I feel very small, but then I remind myself that God made me. He made me in his image. He made me to rule. That God has thought about me. God cares about me. Do you know that today that God, the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth, is thinking about you? He cares about you. Not only did he think about you, but he sent his son Jesus to die for you, to look for for meaning and significance beyond anything other than that is fleeting and hollow. So instead of finding their significance in a relationship with God, they're going to seek significance in their own abilities. They're going to seek to make a name for themselves. Not only are they searching for significance, but they're looking for security. Not just significance, but security. But they're looking for it apart from God. They, they've, they've rebelled against God, and now they've become fearful and anxious. So their thought is, let's build a tower. Let's trust in our own abilities. Let's trust in our own achievements. Let's trust in our own technology. And take note, that which they make, it looks impressive, but it's really weak. Bricks are, are not as strong as stone. Tar is certainly not as strong as mortar. So while this tower looks stable, it is actually very weak. It looks good, but it really is frail and insecure. And quite honestly, isn't that a picture of man? We are easily impressed with our own efforts. We think we've built up these little secure little lives. But any security that's based in anything other than God is weak and it's sure to fail. That God has made us in such a way that ultimate security can only be found in him. That he is our provider. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're saved. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains should slip into the the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake in its swelling pride, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. 
Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to, to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I'll be confident. In the New Testament, if God is for us, who could be against us? And yet the tragic reality today is that people have sought to find security in the things of man instead of God. And what they come to realize at one point or another is that those things that they thought were secure weren't really secure at all. If you've built your life on anything other than the security found in God and his son Jesus, can I tell you today, you are on sinking sand. 401ks will fail you. Economies will rise and fall. Governments will fail. Jobs can be lost. Relationships can be broken. But when you know God through faith in Christ, you have a security that can never be broken. You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You have a savior who will never leave you. And you have an eternal destination that can never be lost. There is no security that even comes close to comparing to the security that can only be found in God and his son Jesus. But here, what do we find man doing? Seeking security apart from God. Boy, do we not see a picture of ourselves in these verses. Our lives revolving around us. Seeking significance and security in our own abilities. Well, then we see the discipline of God. They've left God out of their plans. God is irrelevant to their sophisticated work of city planning and tower building. They had no interest in God. But you know what is so significant here? They had no interest in God but God was interested in them. Did you know that today, even when you didn't want God, even when you weren't thinking about God, when he was irrelevant to you and all the plans you had made for your life, God was interested in you. And here we see God coming down to inspect their efforts. And what they thought was so great and significant to God, it was so minuscule that he has to come down from heaven. He has to leave the throne of God in heaven to come down to even be able to view it. And I want us to stop here for just a moment because they're building a tower to where? Where are they building? It says they're building a tower to heaven. So they want heaven, but they don't want God. They want to get there on their own. And folks, this is a picture of world religion. Every other religion in the world hands you a ladder, a set of religious acts that you have to perform to somehow attain to heaven. But the basis of Christianity is that all of our efforts to get to God are futile because he is far too holy and we are far too sinful. So what does God do? What he does here, he comes down to us. That is the picture of God we see throughout Scripture. He's always coming down, always condescending to our level to save us, to do what we can't do. 
The most powerful picture of this is in Philippians when it says that God, Christ, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a bondservant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would he do that? Because you couldn't save yourself. We can't get to God, and so the picture of Scripture and Christianity is God is always condescending to our level in order to save us, to do what we can't do so that we can enjoy a salvation we didn't earn on the basis of faith, and who gets all the glory? God. These Babylonians, they worship at the feet of human achievement. The idea being we're good enough to get to heaven on our own. They want the glory. So here the Tower of Babel. Man's sinful efforts to get to heaven on their own. So God comes down to examine their efforts and what we see here is God's not impressed. Look at verse 6. It says, Behold, they're one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing will be impossible for them. Now, let me ask you a question. Is what God's saying here, is it said in a a good light or in an evil light? That they they have replaced me, meaning God, with themselves. If they continue, nothing will be impossible for them. It's not said in a good light. It's said in an evil light. Listen, God is not threatened in his supremacy by their collective human ingenuity. No, what God knew and what these city builders did not know was that if they were allowed to continue in their pride and in their sin, there was no limit to the amount of evil that would be unleashed on the earth. So what does God do in verse 7? Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Do you know what they quickly learned right here? That man does not have the last word. The picture that we have here is man saying, God's irrelevant. I don't need God. I'm going to leave him out. I want to do whatever I want to do. And they think that's the last word. That's it. I just kick him out, and nothing happens. And what they're going to realize here is man doesn't have the last word. God has the last word. You know, really, the more I read this, the more I saw a picture of what we studied on Easter Sunday in Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, let us cast away their cords from us. We don't want God. We're going to leave them out. And that's the last word. That's final. And what does it say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Listen to me this morning. God always has the final word. He is the final judge. And whatever man sows, he also reaps. God will not be mocked. So God comes down, and in an act of mercy and grace, what does God do? He separates them. Any of you ever have your children sitting together and they're conspiring together and you know whatever they are conspiring together about, it is not good. It is evil. 
And what do you know you have to do in that moment? You must separate them. Because if they continue to remain together in their sinfulness, they will bring about great evil. And so you separate. And that is what God is doing here. And in his separation, in this dispersion, his discipline was an act of mercy and grace. God's discipline in our life is always an act of mercy and grace. God's desire is to restrain them and to protect them from the sinful possibilities that lied before them. See, here's the problem that we often have. We, we want to exclude God from our lives, and we think we can control how far we go. God, I got this. I can dabble in this, and I won't go too far. God, I got this. I don't need your restraints. And God looks down and says, I'm afraid for these people. Because if this is where they started, no telling where they'll end up. God, in an act of mercy, decides that it would be better for them to be dispersed and separated and have a fear of God than to continue united in their godlessness. And just stop right there for a moment. I don't know about you, but aren't you grateful for some of those moments where God, in an act of divine discipline, placed a gracious restraint upon your life? Where God, you'd made your little plans and you'd left God out and God said no. And he confused your plans. And in that moment, it rarely feels like a blessing and it rarely feels like grace. But looking back on it, God was graciously protecting you from what you thought you could control. Praise be to God for his gracious interventions and restraints. God, an act of discipline, he separates them. The question then becomes, how will they be reunited? Well, that's the beauty of the end of chapter 11. In chapter 11, verses 10 through 32, God focuses again on the plan of redemption. You remember in Genesis 3.15, he promised that there would come this seed of the woman who would defeat sin, Satan, and death. And as we followed this line, we know that he must be a son of, of Adam. And then we saw he's got to be a son of Seth and then, then Noah and then Shem. And what happens in, in the end of chapter 11 is God traces the line of Shem all the way down to one individual, Abram. And now we learn that this promised seed will come through Abraham. It's through Abraham's line that God will send the Savior. And next week in chapter 12, God is going to speak again. And the nations that were cursed at Babel in Genesis 12, God pronounces a blessing that will reverse the curse. And what is the blessing? Abraham, through your seed, one singular individual, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Beginning at chapter 11, the nations are cursed. Chapter 12, the nations find blessing in one individual. 
through your seed. In fact, Paul in Galatians 3.8 says that Scripture saw and announced the gospel to Abraham. That Abraham was a Christian. He was looking for that promised seed. And then Abraham, and as we're going to study through Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they're all looking forward to this Messiah, to this one individual, this seed that will come through their line. You get to the prophets, and they're all looking forward to this one individual, this seed who will come, the one who will defeat sin, Satan, and death, the one who will bring ultimate rest, the one who will again unite the nations. And then in the Gospels, he comes. And when the announcement of Christ's arrival comes, God sends angels to the shepherds and they say to them, we bring you good news of great joy, which will be for who? For all the nations, for all the peoples. And Christ comes and he's born and he lives and he dies. And when he dies, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom and God bids all men, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest. And Christ rises from the dead And he commissions his disciples to do what? To go and make disciples of who? Of all the nations. But before they go out on this mission, they have a 10-day prayer meeting. And in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls. And what happens? They proclaim the gospel. And all the nations that are gathered there hear the gospel in their own language. That at Pentecost, in the coming of the Spirit, the curse is reversed. And the gospel goes forth. And God begins to call out a people amongst the the world, from all the nations of the world. The ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. And the church gives a foretaste of the ultimate reality. This group of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered under the banner of Christ worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords but we are but a foretaste of what will ultimately occur in heaven in fact Revelation chapter 5 gives us a beautiful picture of it when it says that all these nations are gathered around the throne of God and they sing a new song they sing worthy are you to take back the uh, to, to take the book and to break its seals For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Every time I read that, it reminds me of my favorite moment on every mission trip I've ever been on. And that's when you go to another part of the world and you worship with a group of people who don't look like you. And they don't speak the same language. But they're of the same blood. And we're all worshiping the same Savior. And we get a little glimpse, a little foretaste of that one day when all the nations, God will gather them to to himself. And they'll be united in worship of the King. I want to speak very plainly to you this morning. If, if you don't know Christ this morning, I don't know where you're from. I don't know your nationality. I don't know your political party, but here's what I do know. Nations rise and fall. 
nations rise and fall, and behind them all stands this one figure. The one that all of history points us to. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one man, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman that's promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And he and he alone is the solution to our sin problem. And his is the only eternal kingdom. My question to you this morning is, are you, are you a part of his nation? Are you part of his kingdom? You may be asking, well, how do I become a part of his kingdom? Well, you're certainly not going to earn the right to become a part of this kingdom. God is far too holy. We're far too sinful. We become a part of this family by means of faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. You know, in this passage, we see God coming down to scrutinize the lives of these Babylonians. You know, as we study scripture, I don't know about you, but I often find God scrutinizing my life. I don't know anybody that likes critique. <laughs> Oftentimes we don't mind critiquing ourselves, but we don't like other people pointing out our flaws or our errors. And what worries me about that is if we never open ourselves up to critique, how will we ever grow? Most of us go through life like children throwing a tantrum in the grocery store because we don't want anybody critiquing us. But the greater danger, if that's your heart, is if you never open yourself up to critique, how will you ever hear from God or know his salvation? Because you know what the first word of the gospel is? Repent. And do you know what repent means? It means you're going the wrong way. It means you're a sinner. And you've been wrong. And your only means of salvation is to turn in faith and to trust in Jesus Christ. You know, uh, a couple months ago, I think it was, my, um, if you know my brother, he loves collecting sports memorabilia. And uh, one of my favorite pieces of sports memorabilia that he had was a picture, a very rare picture of Tiger Woods, um, of these prints. I, I think there was just a very limited amount of these prints that were ever made. And it was signed by Tiger Woods. And if you know stuff about Tiger Woods, he, his, his autograph's pretty rare. So needless to say, this was a valuable piece of sports memorabilia, and it was placed in the steps going down to my brother's basement, my, into his basement. There he had placed this picture kind of on a ledge. And uh, his son, Maddox, great young man, awesome. 
And if you know Maddox, Maddox is a rule follower. He don't like breaking the rules. Tries to do everything right. But he's kicking a ball around in their living room area. My brother's in his office off to the side. And he kicks that ball and <laughs> flies past my brother's office down into the basement hallway. Pow. Hits that picture. That picture just falls to the ground. Shatters. The glass, as it shattered, it scraped up that picture. Boy, my brother, I, I wasn't there, but I can imagine he got a little ticked off. He told Maddox, Maddox, you get up to your room, just go up to your room. He began to clean up the mess and Pretty soon, he heard some footsteps coming down the stairs. And there was Maddox, and he had his piggy bank. He said, here you go, Dad. You can have all I got. What Maddox didn't know was it's going to take a whole lot more than his piggy bank to cover that. That picture. Isn't that a picture of us, though, sometimes? Boy, we are sinners. God is holy. But we think somehow all our religious deeds and our good works, we're going to somehow come to God and impress him. And sometimes we can be really sincere in it. But if we think we're going to earn God's favor on the basis of our religious works, we are sincerely wrong. What's our only hope? It's the only hope Maddox had. It was that his dad was gracious. And praise God, his dad is gracious. And little Maddox knew his father's love. If you're here this morning, and you know you're a sinner, I hope you know that there's no religious acts you could ever do to get to God. But praise God, he's gracious and he's come for you. He sent his son to die for you. So that you could know eternal value and security in him. But you've got to repent. And you've got to bend the knee. And if you will, there's a grace, there's security, there's freedom, there's salvation, there's forgiveness in him. That is unlike anything you've ever known before. Will you trust him today to become a part of his kingdom, his people, by means of faith? Let's pray together. God, we thank you. God, we thank you that um, we are desperately in need of grace. But the good news is what we so desperately need, you are abundant in. You are abundant in grace and mercy to all who will turn to you. And God, I pray if there's one here this morning 
with the heart of a Babylonian and a Nimrod, they've sought to rebel against you and build a life on their own abilities and achievements. God, I pray that you would do business in their heart today. God, I pray that they would realize today they're a sinner, but I pray that they would look to Christ who is their Savior and they would trust in you with all their heart. I pray today they'd become a part of your people, the people of God. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would ask ourselves very clearly this morning, is our life more about our name than it is your name? Is our life more about our plans and our dreams? Or is it about your will? God, we see this, the mark of your people, the people of God. Is that the only name that we boast in is the name of Christ, through whom we have salvation by means of faith. God, work in our heart. Draw us to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.